You're listening to the Wellspring Podcast. I'm Caleb Williams, the worship leader and prayer room coordinator, Wellspring Community. This week's message was given by Pastor David Williams. It's about the woman at the well. The context of this story at the core tears down every division we make. The Lord came to the woman to offer her water that will never run dry. The Lord later offers his disciples food that isn't from this earth. Enjoy. Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, for Jews of Jesus' time, one number epitomized the sense of completeness, and that was the number seven. Okay? God made the world in seven days. Jacob served seven years for his beloved Rachel. It just seemed like a moment, right? Pharaoh's dream had seven fat and seven thin cows, the traditional menorah candlestick. It had seven lights. Joshua marched around Jericho seven times on the seventh day and so on endlessly. Seven was the complete number. You know this. And if seven was the complete number, then six was just that painful little bit short of seven. In the story of the wedding at Cana in Galilee, in John chapter 2, remember there were six pitchers of water for the rites of purification. This is not quite perfect. And the story of the Samaritan woman is a story of a woman that has had five husbands and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. Now, beloved, listen, this is not simply a piece of gossip that the church is supposed to keep perpetuating even today. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not immoral implications in her life. After all, we all need course correction from time to time. And yes, I believe that Jesus read her mail and all of these things. No, I really believe that these details are vital into the way we understand this incredible story of encounter. We are talking about five bad marriages and one uneasy partner, and that makes six. Samaritans and Jews hated each other for centuries Now, I think this is where we need to begin to get our bearings in this story because the world is full of racism. Very much these realities exist even in Israel to this day. Ethnic groups war and fight against one another, and the root of it has to do with this reality. Samaritans and Jews had hated each other for centuries. Samaria was full of all kinds of ethnic groups with their numerous religious cults. It had been since the, 18th, uh, the 8th century when the Assyrians had invaded the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, you may recall, in biblical history. Over time, the Samaritans developed an uneven uh, uneven but bitter contest with the Jews. The Samaritans Uh, worshipped God on Mount Gerizim. The Jews insisted that the center of their faith was the temple in Jerusalem, 50 miles to the south. 2 Kings chapter 17 tells this interesting storyline about the Assyrian invasion and it lists five kinds of foreign peoples that worshipped idols in Samaria. 
Now the story is beginning to make sense with this incredible encounter with Jesus in the Samaritan woman. We can see the Samaritan woman's five husbands as representing the five false gods that the Samaritans had worshipped. And who is the sixth husband? The one to whom the woman is not married? That's a good question. Well, there are histories in Jesus' time. One historian tells us that Herod the Great actually turned the capital of Samaria into a Roman city called Sebast. Sebast was the Greek name for the Emperor Augustus. Herod filled Sebast with 6,000 colonial settlers. But the historian makes an interesting observation. He notes that the Samaritans did not intermarry with the settlers in the way that they had under the Assyrians, hence Jesus' words, and the one you have now is not your husband. So this woman represents the Samaritan people. Jesus is pointing out that the Samaritans are historically and spiritually devoted to five false gods and now politically subjected to Roman power. These are her six husbands. And at this point, we realize that the Jesus and the Samaritan woman are actually enacting a, court, a courtship ritual that's, uh, that's highlighted throughout the Scriptures. It's rooted in the foundational stories of Israel's faith. Uh, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they all meet their wives while loitering around a well. And they have a conversation there, and in each one of these patriarchal stories, a man comes to a well in a foreign country, finds a maiden there, asks for a drink, and each time she runs back to fetch her people who return with her, approve of the man, they witness the marriage. There's a marriage! <laughs> Glory to God! This is a conventional scene. <laughs> it's just the odd couple, right? Surely Jesus is not going to marry this low-living Samaritan woman. Well, yes and no. I mean, remember in John's Gospel, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, chapter 2. Jesus saved the marriage banquet. Glory to God. And remember when John the Baptist is describing Jesus. He calls him the friend of the coming bridegroom. John is Jesus' best man, beloved. Jesus is the coming bridegroom. John chapter 3, verse 29. So Jesus has already been described as the bridegroom in this gospel. And guess what? We're going to be married. I just want to tell y'all a secret. We are a bride. Glory to God, we got a bridegroom king and judge that's coming, and you and I are going to be married. Heaven and earth are going to be married. It's called the new creation. Yeah. Glory to God. There's going to be a new Jerusalem someday. Glory to God. <laughs> Hallelujah. And now here we are in chapter 4, just a few verses later, and he's courting this Samaritan woman. Don't worry, he's not going to abandon his ministry to settle for suburban obscurity in a three-room, uh, three-bedroom condo in Sychar. No. <laughs> now the point of this marriage ritual, this courtship scene, is quite simple. Jesus is the Samaritan woman's 
seventh husband. Assyria could not save her. Assyria could not save her. Neither could Rome. But Jesus can. And Jesus does. He is the seventh heaven, beloved. He is the completeness, the resolution. He's the fulfillment of her and her people's restless searching for generations. He's the answer to their unquenchable thirst. And that brings us to the water. Oh, there's something in the water. There's something in the water. Glory to God. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. There's something in the water. The story starts with a woman who has a bucket, but no water. And Jesus, who has no bucket, yet he's never thirsty. <laughs> From here develops a conversation that shows exactly who Jesus is and why He's her Savior and why He's our Savior, beloved. The important thing to realize is a note about the language. Because when the woman talks about the well, she refers to it as a cistern containing still, maybe even stagnant water. This recalls an interesting word from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 2 when the Lord through His prophet complains to His people the reality of their physical and their spiritual condition for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no Water, And this, I'm afraid, is the reality of the spiritual condition of the church in North America right now. Why do you think we're losing more and more of a younger generation to the world? I meet them all the time. But when Jesus talks about water... He's talking about a gushing, overflowing fountain of life, a bursting geyser shooting up to the skies. And that's something that only He can give. The woman has two problems. The first is that the water that she is drawing is not very good water. And the second is that however much she draws, she remains thirsty day after day after day. It's just like her situation with her husband's. Her, hus her five husbands have not nursed her, and her six still leaves her thirsty. Let's keep the focus on the full religious and political context of this story today. Jesus is saying the Samaritans' worship of false gods has been like a stagnant cistern, poisonous and debilitating to their way of life. And meanwhile, their subjection to Rome is leaving them perpetually thirsty, unable to break out of the cycle of hand-to-mouth dependence that occupies their entire existence. Like the woman, they are humiliated on a daily basis. But here is Jesus. In the desert of desire, offering water that never runs out in a completeness that quenches all thirst. So this is what verses 5 through 18 mean. 
Jesus is the seventh husband who delivers Samaria from the false worship of Assyria. The five husbands in political subjection to the sixth husband, Rome. He brings a fountain of living water that exposes the squalor of idolatry and breaks the daily dependence on the oppressor. This is a story about the religious and political transformation all people can find in Jesus Christ and even right here and right now, North America, beloved. And there is so much idolatry, it's rampant in the body of Christ. And it's toxic, and it's killing the soul of the church. <laughs> so if neither Assyria nor Rome can save us, well, who can? Jesus and the woman now get into a conversation about correct worship. Isn't that interesting? I wonder whether this might be a conversation rather pertinent to our own age, you know, many of us gather today to meet God in grand buildings all across North America. We could be saying even to ourselves, we may not be sure what or who we've come to worship today and what difference it really makes in our personal lives. But what we do know is that sure as anything, we worship well and we know how to fill a stadium. That's what the woman is saying. Come and look at my tradition. We've got great buildings. We've got fantastic music. We've got an amazing spectacle. We've got touching sermons. We've got droves of people, carefully performed sacraments, and we've got plenty of money, too. And Jesus says to her, maybe so, but this isn't about you. And this is about God. And you know that God chose the Jews so if you're going to be reconciled with God, well, you must be reconciled with the Jews whether you like it or not. One day, maybe soon, all these buildings and traditions and their beauty and splendor, they're going to be swept away. And it's not going to matter. It's not going to be about Samaria. It's not going to be about Jerusalem even. It won't even be about charismatic or liturgical or high or low church or so on or even about us. It'll just be about Him. Hallelujah. 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 You'll be face to face with God. Spirit and truth. That's all. Hallelujah. Hmm. Paul says, I'm a temple, so everywhere I go, he goes. I can sing praise in Walmart as well as I can here in this house of prayer. Now the woman is beginning to get the hang of this. And she says, yes, I know someone is coming who's going to make all these things happen one day. <laughs> Jesus, he looks at her and says, here, now, me, face to face with God. Here, now, me. It's awesome. <laughs> That's really what we mean by encounter, beloved. It's about engaging the Lord face to face, mouth to mouth. That's intimacy like you could ever know. <clears throat> and just then, the disciples 
They spoil the whole thing by bursting in. We've been to Arby's and we got the food here. <laughs> Glory to God. They've ruined this sacred moment of spirit and truth. Oh, <laughs> who are you in this story? Well, I'm one of the disciples. <laughs> oh, boy, I was uh, not sensitive to that one, Holy Spirit. <laughs> of course, they are horrified to see that Jesus seems what he seems to be up to in this moment. This is uh, the moment where the story moves from revelation to its consequences. This is a changeover from who Jesus is to the difference that Jesus makes. And the disciples like me are the fall guys. Okay, Lord, if you want to use me that way, go ahead. They come back from Sychar, and they're dead pleased with themselves that they have successfully gotten away from an unclean city with some food, but without defiling themselves. <laughs> Been there, done that. But just look at what this woman does. Immediately, she leaves her water jar. That water jar, beloved, is a symbol of her daily economic subjection to fetching water for survival day after day after day. That jar represents her social humiliation to having to do so in the heat of the noonday because her life had made her an outcast. That jar tells her every moment of every day that she is trash. And she leaves it behind. Because now she has found living water. And she'll never be thirsty again. And then straight away she becomes an evangelist. Glory to God! Some of you women, you're getting on fire. It's in your belly right now. The Lord has made you an evangelist. And the whole church, unbelieving church, has said, You can't talk in the name of God. Glory to God. Stir up, Lord. She uses the key words back in chapter 1 brought, <clears throat> that brought the first disciples to faith. Come and see. Come and see, and through her testimony, many people from the city believe in Jesus, and astonishingly, Jesus, the loyal Jew, is invited to stay with the Samaritans for two days. Wow. Now that's a miracle in itself. Paul, isn't this interesting? Paul will say it later in his letter, but... The story is actually telling us that the enmity between Jew and Samaritan is over. The dividing wall of hostility has come tumbling down. Glory to God. You talk about some Jericho walls tumbling in this hour. They're going to tumble, 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 beloved. Paul says it like this, For he himself is our peace, what has made both one and has broken down the middle of separation. Ephesians 2.14. What a devastating contrast. The woman returned with faith, truth, testimony, transformation, and reconciliation on an epic scale. And the disciples, meanwhile, returned with food. But Jesus is so merciful yes, to us male disciples. <laughs> he doesn't humiliate them or ridicule their morning's work. He has just transformed the woman's idea of what it meant to drink 
And now he transforms the disciples' notion of what it means to eat. Living water enabled the woman and her people to break free from centuries of spiritual confusion and the present reality of political oppression. Now unknown food, food to eat that you do not know about, offers the disciples a chance to share Christ's glory. Even though the disciples have left the settled agrarian life to follow Jesus, they know two things about food. They know that plowing and tilling and sowing are mighty hard work. And if any of you have ever raised a garden, you know what I'm talking about today, beloved. And they know that none of that work actually bears any kind of fruit until harvest time. Jesus is pointing them, beloved, to the prophetic fulfillment that's underway in his life and ministry from the prophet Amos chapter 9. Verses 13 and 14, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, who, uh, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. Remember the woman had... Two problems with water. Well, the disciples have two problems with food. It's hard work, and you must wait for it. These, if you think about it, is what one might regard as the two problems with salvation. It's hard work, and you must wait for it. But as He did with a woman... Jesus sweeps to the disciples two problems away. It's not hard work because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting, all the labor, and the disciples only must reap. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor, and others have labored and you have entered their labor, and they don't have to wait, beloved, because the fields are ripe. The harvest is now. Look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. And in a stroke, Jesus has taken away all that stands between us and salvation. It's not hard work because He's done all the hard work for us. And we don't have to wait for it, beloved. The harvest is now. So the story about the Samaritan woman is a story about completion. But it's not about our completion. It's about God's completion in Jesus Christ. And therefore, our completion in Him. That's why Paul says, I declare to you Philippian Christians, the God who began a good work in you, He will complete it at the day of His, of, of His coming, of the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming. Jesus is the seventh husband who delivers the Samaritans from religious perversion and political oppression, and He will deliver any and all people that suffer with any form of uh, oppression. 
or oppression or perversion in this hour, even today. Jesus is the fountain of life who delivers the sinner from daily humiliation and the marginalized from perpetual thirst. Jesus is the true place of encounter that brings God and His people face to face. Jesus is the reconciling grace that makes enemies into friends. Jesus offers a way of life that lifts the labor of salvation off our shoulders and brings its joy to us now. And Jesus calls this well of salvation, living water, and this abundant harvest unknown food. And when we read this story, we discover that our unquenchable thirst is over and our gnawing hunger is gone. We realize that in Jesus, we have met God face to face. And we say with the Samaritans, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. And I believe that that's the way God is going to use Gentile Christians to lead our Jewish brothers into the saving power of the gospel through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is by the same faithful witness. Our hope and prayer here today is that we will be this kind of place, beloved. Wellspring community, a place, a community of wellspring where people who may be enemies, people like the Samaritan woman, we, they may encounter Him. We may encounter Him in all of His transforming fullness and that just like this experience in John chapter 4, we may become the fulfillment of Isaiah 12 verse 3. Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word today.